The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're just going to introduce the topic today. We're going to define a few terms. We're also going to look at some presuppositions, uh, things that we don't necessarily defend, uh, but presuppositions that we embrace as believers in, in how we approach the scriptures. So there's well, I should talk a little bit about these books. Uh, we're going to be using a book called Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zook. This is what it looks like without the dust jacket. Denise, can you hold yours up so people can? That's what it looks like with a dust jacket. I don't like dust jackets. I take them off all my books. It's a really good uh, explanation of our topic. I think it's written at a less technical and more popular level. How many of you have this book already? Okay, good. Still have time if you haven't read chapter one before today, do that. Uh, I'm gonna be covering largely what he has in chapter one. Uh, and you can read the book at your own pace, but it'll be helpful if you read the section that we're gonna cover the next Sunday, either immediately before or immediately after we cover it. The other book is one by D.A. Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. It's a little paperback. You can get them both on Amazon. This one really deals with what happens when you don't apply proper hermeneutical principles. So he's teaching by negative example, but it's a really interesting book, uh, not a difficult read. It's less important that you read this than the other, but I would encourage you to get this. Again, read it at your own pace. We're not gonna be, I'll probably bring some stuff out of his book, but we won't be covering it the same way that we cover Zook's book. What are the three steps in Bible study? Somebody name it for me? Okay, pray is preliminary to the actual study. What does it say? Okay, what does it say, and what's the one word that we use for that? Observation. Observation is what does the text say? That one's pretty easy, right? I mean, we ha we're fortunate to live in a culture and a time where we have the Bible in translation in our own language. We actually have a lot of translations available to us, and that's very helpful. Think about it, there's a lot of people in the world that don't have that, a lot of believers that don't have that. We still have a lot of people working on translating the Bible into native tongues. Also, most of us in this room can read, right? Uh, by the time we get to six or seven years old, we're taught to read. So doing the step of observation is not that hard. We're able to read the English language. We have the Word of God in our language. We read it to see what the text says. Then we move to step two, which is what? What would be the one word for step two? Interpretation. What does it mean by what it says? You know, it's one thing to be able to read something. It's quite another to actually understand what it means. Even the Ethiopian eunuch could read what the text says, but when he was asked, did he understand what he was reading? No. He said, no, how, how can I unless somebody helps me? Now, here's where it starts to get to be a little more work. Depends on what you're reading, right, as to how hard it is. And we we actually use the principles of hermeneutics oftentimes subconsciously. For example, I would guess that most of you read a newspaper differently from the way that you read a novel. And in your mind, you, you make that adjustment, even within a newspaper you read a news story differently from the way you read an editorial. Well, it's the same, well, it's not exactly the same with the Bible, but what my point is that <clears throat> there's certain rules and principles that we need to employ and identify, and that's what the science of permanence does, as what's legitimate and what is not. You know, even if you say, well, I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to worry about grammar. I'm just going to read the Bible and see how the Spirit reveals its meaning to me. That in itself is a hermeneutic. That's saying that you don't need to know grammar or you don't need to consider what the original language is say. That you just read it and God just automatically tells you what it says. It doesn't work that way. And people have taken that approach before and <clears throat> corrupted what the Bible says. Now, does the Spirit help us as we study? Absolutely. But we still have a responsibility. It seems like that comes up a lot in the different things that we study. We have a responsibility to employ legitimate interpretive principles, and then the Spirit uses that and enlightens and illumines us at the same time. What makes the Bible 
particularly difficult to interpret as compared to other documents. Think about that question for a minute. Let me ask you another one. How many of you have ever studied the Constitution with the intent of really interpreting it and understanding it in the in the way that it was originally written? Okay, Denise is one. I've never done that before. Kathleen is another. Uh, I remember having a class in school on constitutional law where we looked at cases and applied constitutional principles. But I've never studied out completely the Constitution. It's a, we employ similar kinds of things, principles, to interpret the Constitution, but when we use them in the Bible, what is it that makes the Bible difficult to interpret? The wording? Okay, the wording would be one. Uh, some of the words that we read in the Bible, like propitiatory, we don't read anywhere else. And it's just, what does that mean? So that would be one case. It was written a long time ago? It was written a very long time ago. The oldest books, the books of Moses, at least 3,400 years ago. The most recent book, the book of Revelation, we're talking 1,500 years ago. So anytime you're studying an ancient document like that, you've got to do what? You, you can't. Okay, you've got to go put yourself in the original context. And the way that Zoom describes this, you'll see this if you've not read him already, is overcoming the gaps between where we are today in our culture and where these Bible writers were in theirs. Now, fortunately, God has designed us in such a way that language that was written hundreds of years ago, centuries ago, uh, can still be understood today. But you have to be aware of those gaps, differences in place, differences in time, differences in customs. All those things come into Bible interpretation. Again, fortunately, the more you read the Bible, the easier it is to understand as a believer. Uh, that's another gap we have. If you're an unbeliever and you're reading the Bible, you can understand it on one level, but God has to open your eyes to really understand the spiritual truth that's communicated through the Scripture and, and even to embrace that truth. So, first step, observation. Second step, interpretation. What's the third step that we do in Bible study? Application. Application. What is application? Okay, so now I know what the text means. How do, how do I put it into practice? What, I, what do I do with it? Exactly. <clears throat> What's really important here is proper sequence. People oftentimes try to apply something in the Bible and not go through the step of interpretation, and they'll get it wrong. I mean, if you don't observe interpret and then apply you're going to get things out of order and you're going to be uh, you're going to be twisting the meaning of the scripture and you're going to be making an application that's not legitimate so that process is straightforward enough uh, but it's a lot of work to do it right and it's also important to do it right well let's let me back up just a minute it seems like if everybody followed that process, then we'd all arrive at the same meaning for different passages of Scripture, right? Do we know that that's not the case? We arrive at all different kinds of meanings over the same passage. And uh, this is a guy, Donald J. Campbell, Donald K. Campbell, sorry, that is quoted in the foreword of Basic Bible Interpretation. He makes a, a really good point here. Sometimes it seems almost anything can be proved by the Bible, for there's scarcely a religion, sect, or cult in Christendom that does not use scripture text to prove its doctrine. In that respect, the Bible may well be the most abused book in the world. The solution to this problem of widely differing interpretations is to employ the correct method of biblical interpretation. We believe that to be the literal method which approaches the scripture in the normal, customary way in which we talk, write, and think. That's what the literal method is. Now, as we go through this, we'll see that those who don't uh, adhere as closely to the literal method will say, well, you guys don't interpret literally all the time either, right? Because you, when Christ talks about the sword of his mouth, or when John talks about Christ having a sword coming out of his mouth, is that literal? But literal language uses figures of speech, right? It uses pictures. I can stand up here and say, I'm freezing to death. Well, you know I'm not speaking literally. You automatically make an adjustment in your own mind that I'm using an exaggeration. Um, 
But what we're saying here is that the Bible is, in many ways, a book like any other book. We approach it the same way we approach other books. We seek to understand the language and the grammar and the context the way that we do other books. At the same time, it's a divine book. And there's certain things that we're going to have to, certain qualifications that we're going to have to have as an interpreter to be able to understand its message. Kemmel concludes by saying, it means taking the scriptures at face value in an attempt to know what God meant by what he said. All right? But let's think about that. Uh, I would argue that even within people that embrace the same theological system, there's still differences as to what a passage means. And we've had some recent examples of this taught to us. Matt did an excellent job dealing with Colossians 1.15 and the firstborn of all creation. He walked through the different possibilities of what that could mean. And he did that using sound hermeneutics to arrive at a, a proper decision. Mormon leader Brigham Young justified his having more than 30 wives by pointing to the fact that Abraham more, had more than one wife, as did Jacob, David, and Solomon. What's, what's the error there? Was it wrong for Abraham to have more than one wife? That's a loaded question. I would argue that that's something that changed over time. I mean, even in the law, there's regulation for a man having multiple wives. Even within the Mosaic economy, when a brother who had a wife was, uh, and the brother died without having any children, that wife was commanded to marry the brother, the next brother in line, and that brother was to take her as his wife to raise up seed to her. And it doesn't say that the brother has to be single. So I think it was a safety net in Israel's uh, economy. Now, did that change through time? Absolutely. In the same way that Cain and Abel, well, at least Cain, had to marry sisters initially, right, in order to be able to procreate. Well, that was something that definitely uh, was forbidden over time. All that to say, there's the importance of recognizing that there are things that God, God himself has changed through time. We talked about the span of time over which the Bible was written, 1,500 years that the Bible itself, that's the period of time over which it was written, things changed according to God's plan. Kathleen. Yeah, we discussed this. Oh, for sure. And that they, like God called Abraham out of an idolatrous culture. And he called it, and they, there were no, I mean, there were believers in the one true God in his day, of course. But the culture he came out of was idolatrous. And they had all kinds of things going on. And <coughs> he practiced, they even date when he here by the cultural practices that we find in Genesis that he's walking and he's doing. So approaching scripture looking for an excuse is easy. Like you want to have a lot of wives. But then you got to remember that Solomon and David, they were all born don't do that. Okay, so I would take issue with you there a little bit. Yeah, but it's like you said, you're going to multiply wives and different things are going to happen. And why, 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 why did they do that? You know, that always mattered. The why, the, the, they, it's not just your actions. It's what's going on in your thinking. The righteousness can be broken in your thinking. And then it walks out. And looks at, so it what about the Jacob, also known as Israel, and the twelve tribes of Israel? They came from four different women. There's no condemnation. They hadn't, they hadn't received the law yet. Okay. Well, was it wrong then for them to have multiple wives before the law? All I'm saying is to go back and use a narrative, something that was going on in someone's life 
and build doctrine on it. Okay. It's very dangerous. So that's a good point, and it's a point that I wanted to make here as well. There's a difference between something that's descriptive, like narrative, what Kathleen's talking about, and prescriptive in the sense of you should do likewise. Okay, and it does seem like Mormon leader Brigham Young is, is taking that in this case. He's looking at an instance and said, well, they did this in the Bible, that means I can do it too. But I would argue that even after the law was given, there was regulation, but for a man who had two wives, one loved and the other not loved, and the fact that he couldn't deny conjugal relations with the one that was unloved, there's a point at which God rebukes David and says, look, I gave you all these wives, and yet you took somebody else's. So it's another one of those issues where you have to look at the different instances in Scripture. I'm not advocating for polygamy today, by the way. I'm just saying that you've got to understand that times have changed. And it's a very important principle for where, when you're interpreting the Bible is to understand where you are in the flow of time, in the flow of God's revelation, and interpreting accordingly. Yeah, and I'm, I'm talking again, Brigham Young's justifying. Yes. He, there are things he should have, if he was truly a student of the word. That's true. He should have, he should have also. Yes. But you can see also the flip side of what I'm saying is he's using the Bible to try to justify, as you said, what he's doing. Well, he is. Exactly. And he's also saying that he got additional revelation, right, to do some of the things that he did. So that's something else we'll talk about. Um, you can't do that. The Bible is unique. It's God has given it to us. Uh, it's been preserved from the very beginning to the very end. And we don't need additional revelation. So, can we say that it's safe to say that literal means Abraham really said that? Abraham really did that. God really said that. God really did that. That person is saying God did that, but we can tell elsewhere he was lying. I mean, you can literally see that, that, that God is not, there's no like, I mean, like you said, I mean, um, yeah, I, I believe, for example, donkey really did speak at one point. Sure. I mean, these, it, it, we could take it. So when I say literally, what I mean more, I don't disagree with how you've defined it there, but I'm saying that in comparison to allegorically, for right. example. Yeah. And we'll talk about the different ways through history, and you might be surprised through church history even, how differently people have approached the Bible because they saw it as a mystical thing or because they wanted to get more quote-unquote spiritual applications out of it than, than what it was trying to give. So when I say literal, you know, that's the basis upon which we communicate with each other now. When we talk to each other, we assume literal meaning first. And then if somebody's using a figure of speech, that's clear in the context. I would say it's the same for the Bible. God has communicated his revelation to us intending for us to understand it. So the basis of that always has been literal interpretation. All right. Some teach, and this would be... Uh, the difference between covenantal and dispensational theology. So you don't have to go all the way outside to somebody like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. We've got a major division of theology within evangelicalism. More than one, but these are two of the big ones. Some teach that Christ's present reign in heaven means that there's no need for a thousand year reign by Christ upon the earth. Though, and that's my comment, Revelation 20 explicitly teaches it. If you're reading Revelation 20, that reign is on the earth, it's not in heaven. But lots of theologians through the years that we would have high regard for in, in many areas would teach that, no, the thousand-year reign is not to be taken literally as a thousand years, and it's a reign that comes from heaven and not on the earth. This is just three examples of where uh, hermeneutics and, and sound interpretive principles come into play to determine the accurate meaning of what the text actually says. Uh, if you read Zup, or if you've read him already, you'll see that he provides some more in there. All right, let's think about some definitions. Hermeneutics, the word itself, comes from the Greek word ermenuo. That's the verb meaning I interpret or explain. Uh, simply defined as the science, which is the principles of interpretation, and the art of biblical interpretation. This is from a guy named Milton Terry. If you haven't 
heard of him before. He was an expert on hermeneutics as well as many other theological disciplines. You can Google him and get some more information about him. He wrote, he lived largely in the 1800s. I think he lived all the way to 1914. Most of his life was in the 1800s. And he wrote a very classic work, a big work on hermeneutics. He says, therefore, it's both science and art as a science. It enunciates principles, investigates the laws of thought and language, and classifies its facts and results. As an art, it teaches what application these principles should have and establishes their soundness by showing the practical value and the elucidation of the more difficult scriptures. Really what the study of hermeneutics is, is making explicit principles of interpretation that we often use without even thinking about it. Um, but we, in the process of doing that, we also recognize that there are certain principles that aren't legitimate in interpreting the Bible. Um, so it's just to help us do it that way. <clears throat> How many of you have heard of the term exegesis? Okay, what is that? I put it up there for you already. I should have asked the question before. Exegesis is applying the principles of hermeneutics to determine what a text means, uh, to interpret that text. And there's a couple of different analogies that people have used. Uh, if, if exegesis is the game, then hermeneutics is the rules by which the game is played. If exegesis is the baking of the cake, then hermeneutics is the cookbook. Uh, exegesis is the making of the cake. Exposition is the presenting of the cake to others. We'll talk a little bit more about exposition in a little bit. Um, hermeneutics are the principles, are the rules. And you, you might think, and I think about this, you know, I've enjoyed sports all of my life. I've never enjoyed studying the rules of sport. There's people that play golf, and golf has a lot of rules, and they just they get really excited about studying all these golf rules. <coughs> to me, that's not any fun. <laughs> but for hermeneutics, it is more enjoyable. I'm not quite sure why, but it, it is more enjoyable, I think, because it helps make you a better student of Scripture itself. And it helps you also recognize when somebody else is using bad hermeneutics. So exposition, then, is the setting forth of the meaning of the text in a public presentation, whether oral or written. It's taking the results of what a, whoever, a pastor or a teacher, does in private in the study and putting that in a form that you communicate to an audience where they can understand it. Sometimes you can share what you do more explicitly uh, as part of your exegesis to the audience. Usually you don't do that, at least not as much. You're trying to take the results of your study and communicate them in a way that's edifying to the people that you're talking to. Here's what it looks like as a diagram. And this is, <coughs> excuse me, the um, kind of the levels, whoops, and the sequence that has to be followed in order to not get off the, wrong, the right path. Um, so at the most foundation and fundamental level, you have Old Testament, New Testament survey, biblical languages, which would be Hebrew, Greek, and uh, Aramaic, and hermeneutics as principles of interpretation. Now, you say, well, <clears throat> I've been a Christian and I've lived my life up to this point, and I've not done these three things. And you don't have to do them uh, to be uh, successful in the Christian life, let's say. But especially for somebody who's having a teaching ministry of the Word, and I think you'll, as we go through this class, you'll understand more the importance of these disciplines. These are the foundational things that you need to understand first and then build your theology out of that. The languages and hermeneutics in particular are things that you put into practice as you study a text and as you seek to understand what it says. That's the practice of exegesis. And then out of exegesis flows things like biblical theology, which traces the meaning of a whole Bible book or the meaning of a section of Bible books like the Pentateuch or the meaning of the entire Bible. It seeks to understand the theology as it runs through the scripture. Uh, and again, that's built on sound exegesis and sound hermeneutics. What's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. What does systematic theology do? It's man-made categorizing to make it easier to um, branch out the study. Okay, 
it is a categorizing of all that the Bible says on a particular topic. Right? It can be helpful. It also has dangers. What were the dangers of going through the scripture and finding out everything that's said on a particular topic? You lose the context. That's why I like biblical theology better. If you do biblical theology, you're eventually going to get all that the Bible teaches about a particular topic. It's going to take some time. But if you do systematic theology, you can take things out of context easily. Now, you can also do systematic theology and really carefully look at each context that you're categorizing. But uh, I like the control of context that biblical theology provides. Church history for us is something that we really evaluate in a sense through biblical exegesis. Not everything in church history was right, right? Uh, we can evaluate whether it was right or not by seeing what the Bible actually says about it. But church history also can be very valuable to us. It teaches us about ways that different doctrines were expressed through the different church councils. Uh, biblical exegesis has to be employed in order to have a proper understanding, I say philosophy of religion here, and this chart actually comes from Dr. Thomas's book. It also has to be employed for apologetics, for defending the faith. And the reason that it has to be employed is that men come up with different methods for both of those things that aren't necessarily biblical. So we need to uh, examine what is said and the methods that's being used against sound biblical exegesis. Same for homiletics, which is the art of organizing to preach a message counseling counseling really is nothing more than bringing to bear what a particular passage has to say on the situation to the of the person that you're talking to christian education administration missions and evangelism uh, we want to do those things the way the bible describes them or the way that the bible speaks to them and even the things that we see in contemporary society we want to measure how we stand on a particular issue against what the Bible says. You have to do good exegesis to be able to do that. And then the culmination is Bible exposition. Again, it's the setting forth of what the Bible teaches in a popular format, whether that's oral or written. <coughs> Any questions about that chart? I didn't say a lot about Old Testament, New Testament survey. Those were some of the most impactful classes for me in seminary because I'd never done that before. I'd never uh, been required to read through the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament over four different semesters. That was invaluable to me. I saw things in that way that I'd never seen before. I'd been a Christian for a long time and I tend to stay in the New Testament. Uh, there was an awful lot that I didn't see about the continuity of God's progress of Revelation. Uh, and that's something that we do as a church. I remember being in seminary and thinking, why in the world don't we do this in church? Uh, and I grew up in church. Um, but I think it's something we've done before here at Grace Bible Church. It's something we'll do again because we do it at a very high level, but it, it helps see the outer pieces of the puzzle. It helps get those in place, and then you add to the pieces as you study through individual books. So if you're building toward exposition in view of what you just said uh, the like level three would be things that you draw from at different seasons not necessarily every time to get to from exegesis to exposition i have to do my due diligence my section church history my section is systematic my section it's just accumulative and informing yes i think you both evaluate those things and you draw from those things for exposition you can see there's also a line straight from biblical oh, Jesus to exposition so you don't necessarily have to do those but it's often helpful to to be able to look back on some of those at least and let those inform your exposition okay what is a presupposition bring a pre-understanding you bring to the text that's right or to any other matter you presuppose something in the sense of you're not going to try to prove it it's a pre it's something that you hold on to by virtue of you believe it's right basically so we want to talk about some presuppositions that we come to the text of scripture with one we believe firmly in the inspiration of scripture second timothy 3 16 says literally a little more literally than the way the translations always put it, 
all scripture is God breathed. Now that applies both to the scripture as a whole, the whole Bible, and the whole sections, different sections of the Bible, as well as to the very words of scripture. We believe that God so superintended the writing of scripture by the human authors that he had them record down to the very word what he wanted said. That Words matter, right? You can change one word and really change the whole meaning of something. Now, I'd be quick to add to that. God did that in such a way that it wasn't mechanical dictation. He, he used the past experiences and the personalities and the education of those biblical authors. And they were putting things in their words, but at the same time, he moved them to write what he wanted written and even, I would argue, down to the very word. And because we believe that scripture is divinely inspired in that sense, we come to it in faith. We come to it without skepticism. Uh, when we read about the miracles that are in the Bible, we believe them. I don't know why that's so hard for some people who at least claim to be biblical theologians. They want to cut out all the miracles of the Bible. I mean, if you start with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything for God is downhill from that. He can create whatever he wants to do. He can override his own laws of nature. Miracles are not hard for a God that has all power. Secondly, is the clarity of Scripture. Scripture was meant to be understood by a regenerated believer. We, we presuppose that. We don't try to prove it. Uh, I think that's a presupposition that we take in all forms of communication. When we talk to somebody or we communicate with somebody else by talking or writing, we assume uh, beforehand that we're trying to be understood. That we communicate in such a way that we want the other person to understand what's being said. Clarity of Scripture is important with regard to the difference of how the Roman Catholic Church looks at the Bible. They basically say that the Bible says what the church says that it says. In other words, the authority for them is in the hierarchy of the church. For us, we believe that the every day, every believer can understand what the Bible says. Now, does that mean that we don't need teachers in the church? No, because God spells out that that is one of the gifts that he's given, is gifted men to teach in the church to help other people understand what the scripture says. But I, sh I should never have to say to you, well, just believe this because I'm telling you that's what it means. I don't do that. I should be able to show you from the text so that you can understand yourself. Yeah, I see that's what it means. And there's an awful lot of the Bible that you can read on your own with the Spirit's help and understand what it says anyway. Now, the clarity of Scripture doesn't mean that all parts are equally clear. There's a lot of places in the Bible that even though the original audience probably wouldn't have had as much trouble as we do today. It's hard, hard for us to understand exactly what's being communicated. <clears throat> Luther spoke of two kinds of clarity. One is that scripture, like any other written document in human language, follows the laws of human language and is thereby comprehensible. He called that external clarity. <clears throat> Secondly, internal clarity is the work of the spirit in the heart and mind of the believer where the Spirit illuminates the mind to the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of God. You've got both of those things going on all the time. We have more control over uh, the part where we study the grammar, we understand the context, and we really work hard to understand what the Bible says. God's going to do His part easily enough by illuminating by the Spirit uh, so that we understand what's being communicated. Another important presupposition is the single meaning of Scripture. And what I mean by that is when you read a particular passage or a particular verse, it means one thing. You can't say, well, this is what it means to me. And this might be what it means to you. It means one thing. That meaning is frozen in time. Now, I don't know if Dr. Thomas would fully appreciate this, but there could be times where there's a play on the meaning. Even Scripture writers use puns in the same way that we do. And sometimes there could be a double entendre in some sense or another. But I think you'd have to have the, that to be really clear in the context of the passage itself. What this principle does is, is really 
stay away from or avoid the idea that there's multiple meanings in Scripture, and we'll see this when we cover the history of interpretation, where there's allegorizations of the physical meaning and the spiritual meaning and on, on and on. Milton Terry, the guy that I mentioned before, said this about this principle. Fundamental principle in grammatical historical exposition. When he says grammatical historical, all he means there is according to the rules of language and the, the time in which it was written. It's another way of saying literal interpretation. <coughs> according to the a fundamental principle in grammatical historical exposition is that words and sentences can have but one significance or meaning in one and the same connection. The moment we neglect this principle, we drift out upon a sea of uncertainty and conjecture. So that helps make the principle more clear. It's not a subjective thing. We don't bring meaning. There's a reader response theory that's been around for decades now. And the idea somehow is that the reader brings meaning to the text. It's not the way it works. God has put meaning in the text through the biblical writers. Our task is not bring meaning to the text, but understand the meaning that he's put in there. Scripture is a progressive revelation. What do I mean by that? God reveals more to us as we as we read further and are able to understand more. Okay, so that's kind of progressive illumination or sanctification for the believer. What about the scripture itself being a progressive revelation? From a time standpoint. Yes. It's progressive in that way. Exactly. It starts in the beginning. That's right. And it goes all the way to the end. Exactly. And it was given that way, right? The Bible just didn't fall out of heaven all at one time. It started way back with the books of Moses. Uh, It was given over a period of 1,500 years. And again, you have to recognize that as you're studying and interpreting the Scripture. Now, when you're reading the epistles, it's easier because we live still in the church age. And we understand the kind of issues that the church was dealing with and the, the biblical writers were addressing. But when you're back in the Old Testament especially, You've got to put yourself in the situation of that original writer or reader, and it's not fair. It's breaking the good rules of hermeneutics to say, ah, here's what it says in the New Testament. I'm going to read that back into the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way. You've got to follow and put yourself in the same way that you try to interpret the Constitution, if you're a literalist in that way. You try to understand what the meaning of the original writers was and then make application. Okay, I've heard people say they lose faith in scripture when they find out man made the order the books are in and that they're even different than the way the Jews did it. And so I honestly I'm thinking when we talk about progressive revelation, we need to learn stuff. We need to learn where the prop prophet writings fit into the history of the time not not what order they're in and we need to see that the letters that are written in the new testament are solving problems teaching new doctrine they're not trying to give you progressive they're not trying to They can do they both. are teaching something simple like um, it's got to be on the inward man. It can't just be the outward actions like the law requires. You got punished under the Old Testament law for outward actions, but now God wants you. And, and believers back then did this also. God wants you to think about what's going on in your thinking, your motives and stuff. And this this face the fact that you will get disciplined from God for that now walk and they didn't wrestle with that um, but real believers did you know what I'm saying so that's where the prophets came in because the prophets were pointing out you 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 obey the law outwardly but inwardly you're a mess right so first I don't understand why somebody would lose their faith on the way that the books are ordered to well, me that that's a very separate issue from what the books actually yeah, say I don't mean they're, they just whether or not 
the Bible is a book that you can trust to teach you as a Christian. There's a lot of doubt with that these days. I like just all you do is go to a bookshop. I was walked into a Bible store and I was shown all the books on one issue and the books were open and many of them disagreed with each other on those particular topics. Yeah, like, that's why we're doing the class. So why do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? Because he said it. Okay, because he said it. Hey, what? Have we, have we always believed it? I have. What about before you were believing? Before I, I grew up, I was simply told by my grandmother, this is the book God wrote, and from that point on, I believed that. I didn't get saved by the 53, but I took her word for it, and I never doubted it again. Okay, let me ask the question this way. Why do a lot of people not believe that the Bible is the word of God? They don't want to. Okay, they don't want to. What's the difference between those two? Why does one want to believe and the other not? They're trying one's to alive prove. and one's dead. Exactly. Right. It's the new birth. The new birth gives us new presuppositions, at least in some respect. And we believe the Bible is the word of God because God has made it clear to us that that's the case. And a lot of religions believe the Bible is the word of God. Which ones? Um, the Jews, for example. And the New Testament is the Word of God. That, that's true. They, I was going to say that. They just redefine what the Bible is. Okay. But when I say the Bible, I mean the whole corpus. Old Testament, New Testament. Right. Um, but <laughs> we, I personally, I don't care what order the books are in. I think they straighten themselves out as you read them and you realize, you know. like Yes. You, so you can have the books in different orders. And as you noted, Bibles do. But there's still a chronological flow to the revelation itself. And that's what the progress of revelation is all about. To me, I know some people like to read the prophets along with the historical books of where the prophets actually spoke to different ones. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and maybe that is more helpful. But to have them all in one section and then just when you study them to recognize, okay, this is where Israel was as they were making this proclamation, I think you can get the same results. And you can believe that you can believe in God and not trust Jesus as your Savior. So you can believe all the attributes of God and not believe that he therefore would come and take your punishment for you. You can believe in the Trinity and still not believe that what happened on that cross went for everybody. I mean, you, you can do all kinds of things with the Bible if you, if you, if you want to stop believing at a certain point. You know, I don't know how, I mean, like, I always knew the Bible was the, the Word of God, and you could certainly take care of a book. And I, I read it for years before I was saved, and I thoroughly enjoyed all kinds of parts of it, and it wasn't until I was saved I began realizing I'm a sinner. Yeah. Definitely, the new birth definitely makes a difference in how you understand and really, I mean, there's one thing to say that you believe the Trinity. It's another to actually see and embrace what Scripture teaches about each member of the Godhead. I don't know how you could embrace what the Bible teaches about the deity of Christ and not believe that Christ died for your sins. Yeah, I think. That's all I can say. I think that's a result of the new birth. Well, that's what I say. I think that's a result of new birth in both cases. Plus, we, we, if you're a student of, of books, you know how well supported the Old Testament, the, the Bible is, as far as the copies that we have. Yes. It's like far, unbelievably supported. That's right. But when it talks to you and tells you you're sinning, all of a sudden you don't want to believe in it anymore. <clears throat> And it's easy to put it aside and say, well, that was then, that was then, this was that. It's kind of easy to mess up. It, it is. Uh, it's, it's a different matter, I think, when you're being convicted of sin and trying to avoid that. I'm not sure that that's unbelief so much as trying to rationalize your own behavior. But in any case, let's keep moving on here. This is uh, Bernard Ram is another guy that wrote uh, a pretty significant work on hermeneutics. He's talking about this, the principle of progressive revelation. This perspective of progressive revelation is very important to the interpreter. 
he will expect the full revelation of God in the New Testament. So I don't have a problem with that. Uh, and I'm going to show you a little diagram that I think best explains that. But he won't force New Testament meanings into the Old. Yet he'll be able to more fully expound the Old Testament knowing its counterparts in the New. He will adjust his sights to the times, customs, manners, and morals of the people of God in any given state in the Old Testament period of Revelation. That's just getting into the period that you're actually interpreting. And he'll be aware of the partial and elementary nature of the Old Testament Revelation. He will take Augustine's words. I should let Denise read this. No, you should let Abby have Abby, will you read Latin for us on the screen? <laughs> Where? The italics and the, the yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try if you don't want to. Thank you. Distinguish the times and you will harmonize scripture. I don't know why they want to put that in Latin. It's easier for us to put it in English. Uh, as as a guide, so as not to create a contradiction in scripture by forcing a New Testament standard of morality or doctrine upon an Old Testament passage. And again. I think probably in the context there, I'd have to go back and read Ram's context. He's talking about something like multiple wives. So, just trying to illustrate this pictographically. We don't read the Bible like this. That is, seeing this hard and fast division between the Old and New Testament, while recognizing there was a period at which divine revelation stopped, and for 400 years no prophet spoke, and that's kind of the division that we have in our Bibles today of the Old and New Testament. But we don't want to see such a hard and fast division and focus on the New Testament and then read that New Testament meaning back into the Old Testament. I make that point because a lot of people do that. I did it. Uh, we're much more familiar with the New Testament. I think as members of the church, it's understandable that we would rely on and want to study more the epistles that directly address our situation or the gospels that speak directly to the life and ministry of Christ. The better way for us to read the Bible is to see the whole thing as the word of God as one continuous story and to read it that way from Genesis to Revelation. That's what biblical theology does. Uh, that's why we encourage you to read through the Bible in a year. You'll see things that way uh, that no other exercise will show you the same way. You'll see how later revelation actually builds on earlier revelation. And you'll see continuity in a way that you don't if you just kind of jump around in Scripture. I'm not saying you can't get any profit from that. I'm just saying this is, I think, a better way. The Bible is unique as a book. This is another quote from Zuck. Since God is the divine author of the book, it's totally unique. It's one of a kind. The Bible's not simply a book with man's thoughts about God and man. The Bible reports what God did and communicates. And I double-checked that he didn't say who he is. He said what he is and what he desires. The Bible is also unique in that it was written by God and man. Human authors wrote as they were guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what 2 Peter 1 says. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture, and he's not talking just about prophecy in the way that we think about it there, is a matter of one's own, NAS says interpretation, I think the better word there is imagination, or one's own thinking. It didn't come from man, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. First five books of the Old Testament were written about 1400 BC. The last book around 95 AD. So the Bible was written over a period of 1500 years by 40 different human authors. So it is a human book. Uh, it's not mystical. It's written in human language and intended to be understood by humans. But to me, uh, I mean, there's no other book like it just from those facts alone, right? The fact that there, you've got 40 different human authors and yet it reads as one story from Genesis to Revelation. That's clear evidence that God is the one who's moving these men to write what he wants written. It's a divine book. God's the ultimate author. This means that some things in his word we're going to really wrestle with. 
I mean, we're limited, finite creatures. Very hard for us to grasp eternity in the first place. And God is not limited. Um, so we should be surprised if we don't wrestle with some things in Scripture. It would be easy enough if it was only a human book. First, try to understand all of it, but it's both human and divine at the same time. And of course, it's still the best-selling book in the world. I looked this up. Guinness World Records, at least in 1995, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Estimated 5 billion copies sold and distributed. I don't know how they count that, but uh, there's a lot that would be not sold and distributed too. But it's, it's clearly uh, a word from God that has been spread all over the globe. The original languages are important. I'm not saying that you have to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible. What I am saying is it's very helpful when you come down to a disputed passage to look at what the original language says. And that would be true in anything else, right? You couldn't be an expert in French literature and not know French. You've got to be able to see the nuances of the original language to be able to make the best decision between two competing alternatives. Grammatical historical interpretation is to gather from the scriptures themselves the precise meaning which the writers intended to convey. It's like being an originalist, going back to the original document, understand what's being conveyed. It applies to the sacred books, the same principles, the same grammatical process and exercise of common sense and reason which we apply to other books. Now again, there's going to be certain things in the Bible that are going to go beyond human common sense and reason. But we can still understand exactly what's being said, and we have to submit our minds to what the scriptures say, rather than saying, well, that's just not logical. <clears throat> okay, that's the introduction. Again, it's a definition of terms, presuppositions, how these fields relate to other theological disciplines. Next week, we talked a little bit about it this morning, but next week we'll talk more about the need for hermeneutics. Uh, overcoming some of those gaps that we described and, um, and we'll go from there. Any other questions before we dismiss? Make sure you get a copy of the book. Uh, I hope I hope it won't be dry to you. It, it hasn't been for me. Alright, no other questions? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we recognize that we've been made in your image and that you give us an ability to communicate that's very different from the rest of the animal kingdom. You give us an ability to know you because we're made in your image. And part of that is language. Uh, we thank you that you've communicated to us in a written uh, record that's uh, not corrupted through time. We recognize on the one hand that as scribes copied the scriptures, there have been the introduction of differences. That's due to human frailty. But we also recognize that you've given us an ability to compare those copies and determine what the original reading was. So we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you that you've given it through time and through 40 different human authors as a demonstration that it originally comes from you. Uh, we thank you for the supernatural nature of this book to change lives, to, to produce a new birth, and to set people on a different path than the one that they were born into. And we pray that you would continue to use your word uh, to sanctify us in the truth. And I pray that this class will be helpful in that regard, just not just for the uh, sake of studying rules of interpretation, but for the sake of knowing you and your word better. Thank you for the time we've had broadly together this morning. Help us to stand for Christ and to be a witness to, to him in all that we undertake this week. In Jesus' name, amen.